0: Hello, and welcome to Quid Pros Quo. I'm Zach. And I'm Rin, And we're here to talk to you today about conlangs. Conlang is a what's called a portmanteau of the two words, uh, constructed languages. Uh, constructed languages are something that pop up a lot in fantasy fiction, uh, thanks to the great granddaddy of them all, J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, and a lot of uh, writers that kind of feel like that they need a constructed language in order to go and emulate um, the bigwigs, but that really isn't the case. Um, a conling is something that is useful for increasing immersion, that's the entire purpose of having a constructed language. Beyond that, it can it can serve to confuse your reader. It can be one of those classic cases where your reader is like reading the book and can't pronounce any of the names, yeah. and so they have this this audio track in their head as they're going through and reading, and then they hit the the proper noun and they're like ah
1: yeah just a static <laughs> like, yeah crinkling sure. a wrapper right into the phone microphone
0: <laughs> exactly. So today we're talking about kind of a high level, um, high level tools and concepts that are useful when you are approaching creating your own constructed language.
1: Perfect. So some of these tools, you can find them by reading books. You can find them by studying languages. Uh, when I've never tried to create a Conlang, I've done a one workshop, half of a workshop on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember one thing in the workshop is that you can base it off an existing language and like use similar sounds so like i have a polynesian inspired work in progress so i'm probably going to make a link for that work in progress and Mm -hmm. i'm going to use words that sound similar to polynesian languages but aren't necessarily made up of real polynesian words yeah
0: and that's a great place to start is by looking at the uh, looking at the languages that you want to emulate the sound of um, if you are into linguistics, the uh, name of this is phonotactics. It's the rules about what sounds you can put together inside of this language. And every language is made up of a phonology, which is a list of the sounds that are in the language as well as the phonotactics, which is how mm. you put the, put the sounds together. Would, and,
1: a, would a phonology be like kind of like the
0: alphabet? It can be. Um, it's just when you're coming from English, using the alphabet is a really bad example because yeah. every letter in the or most letters inside the English alphabet can make multiple sounds depending on mm-hmm. the context. Um, but for languages like Spanish where the vowels always make the same. Within reason, make the same uh, make the same noises. Yes, it's a it's akin to a to the phonology of uh, of the language.
1: Okay, makes sense.
0: Yeah, um, and the phonotactics are rules about how you put them together. And phonotactics are unique to separate languages, and it helps explain why for us we have as English speakers we have certain difficulties with pronouncing words in Eastern European languages because they have mm-hmm. very different. Um, phonotactics than English does. And it's also why, for example, um, Spanish speakers have a really hard time saying, uh, you know, like Shakespeare. Because K-S-P, that combination of of sounds, is not, doesn't really exist in Spanish. And yeah. so it's a lot easier for Spanish speakers to drop one of them or to put in an extra E sound so that it's shaka or something along those lines which helps them to helps them to understand how to say it. and we do this too inside yeah. of English when we're doing other languages we'll put in an extra an extra vowel or kind of Jimmy the word a little bit so that's a little bit more comfortable on our on mm-hmm. our tongues as well yes
1: yeah I was th- I was thinking another example of that is in French they don't want really to have the th sound mm-hmm. so like my full name is Catherine but my high school French teacher will always say Catherine mm-hmm. uh, just because she was a native French speaker. She does not do the th sound.
0: Yeah, that's a great example. Yeah. So when you're coming up with your own language, you're going to want to start with the phonology or the list of sounds that you're going to have inside of the language, and then you're going to decide how you're going to put those put those together. Um, there's lots of there are lots of different possibilities here, and you can go really deep into this or you can keep it more surface level. If you're interested in going deeper, Learning about linguistics is going to be super helpful. Um, and something else that will be super helpful is learning a second language. It doesn't really matter what language it is. But once you have it in your mind how a second language works, you start to recognize that the way that your language works is not the default. Yeah. And you start start to think about, okay, well, that's how it works in English. And this is how it works inside of this other language that I know. How else might it work? And that can give you some more some more options for how you might go about constructing your language.
1: And would you say, knowing multiple... Like, you mentioned linguistics. I have a linguistics major friend who speaks, like, five languages. Mm-hmm. Do you think the more languages you learn, the, like, more of an advantage you have while creating colleagues? Or does it, like, plateau out? Like, is it a logarithmic or an exponential <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I would say that... Uh, the more languages that you are familiar with, not necessarily the more languages you speak, but if you're more familiar with the way that other languages work, your mind expands to the different options that are out there. Um, I would think that it also depends on which kinds of languages you're talking about. Because if you know five Romance languages, then you're still... A Romance language is a language that's descended from Latin. Mm -hmm. Um, So you're idea and conceptualization about what a language can be is still expanded from just having one language but it's limited inside of scope so if you know uh, for example if you know a Latin language and uh, you know an Arabic language um, and you know a a, like a
1: German language, a German
0: language or, an, or a Chinese language or a phonetic language so to say um, then you have much broader coverage as far as different different sound structures and different uh, phonotactical schemas.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so it really comes down to what, which language families are you pulling out of. Because if you're all in the same language family, then you're not going to get as much variety if you're looking across language families.
1: Yeah. And maybe we should talk for a second about how the language family you should match it to your setting in your book for just a brief moment. Yeah. Because a lot of traditional fantasies thinly veiled Europe. Yep, yep. <laughs> um, but if you're doing something in, oh, I don't know, there's more Middle Eastern inspired or Asia inspired, you'll want to not use like a romance language for those two settings because it wouldn't make sense. The right. vibes would be totally off.
0: No, for sure. Yeah, you're. That's one of the things. That's one of the, the things that we have to deal with, with as an author is that people come into, um, come into our book with the, their own lived experience and their own expectations. And so, if you are inside of a setting that's heavily inspired by. Um, for example, Imperial Japan, but all of the names and all of the like, all the constructed languages based around, uh, uh, based around an Eastern European language, there is going to be that kind of weird like cognitive dissonance there, which is exactly exactly mm-hmm. what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, absolutely.